Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. It is time for Bloomberg Opinion. Very interesting set of opinions from Joe Nocera recently. One on Florida and then plenty of others that we want to get to as well. So let's get to Joe right now who joins us from Boca Raton in Florida. Joe, welcome and thanks for joining. Uh, Thanks for having me. First of all, how is the situation in Florida? How much are people now abiding by rules where they didn't need to once upon a time? Well, uh, here in Boca Raton, actually, people have been abiding by rules at least since I got here a month ago. So there's no there's no issues there. What you hear is that um, a lot of twenty uh, somethings in Miami were not wearing masks, were throwing parties. Um, I don't think that is still going on because the numbers have been so high. The daily positive case numbers have been so high; it's been kind of scary. Um, but you know, there are still you know. There's, there's a lot of uh, Latinos uh, getting COVID because they're farm workers and, you know, they get they don't have masks and they, they get on buses and they're all crowded together and they go to work and then they come home and they live in, you know, relatively small homes. And so uh, that that has been part of the uh, uh, surge here as well. So, Joe, I used to love reading your stuff, the Times, your sports uh, work at The New York Times. You know, you're out with a column here just recently, very interesting, talking about sports, and that's kind of been, you know, a big, big, big issue for a lot of people. And we've got Major League Baseball uh, opening up last night with the Yankees winning, I should point out. Um, so how do you think this is going to play out, Joe? I mean, you know, you're down in Florida. That's a huge college football state. You know, right. I, I just don't see how this is going to play out. How, what are your right. thoughts here? I, I think, okay, so I'd be very surprised if there's college football this fall. Uh, at a minimum, I think it'll get pushed to the spring because, you know, un- unlike the pros, these guys aren't getting paid. And, and, and in many of these schools, the, the students aren't going to go to school. They're going to, be doing, they're going to be doing it remotely. And so how can you say, well, we've got to have the athletes on campus to play football games so we can make money when, we, when, when, when no other students are here? I mean, it's just it's, – it's, 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 the hypocrisy is even <laughs> worse than usual for college sports. So I'd be very surprised to play college football. The pros are different. I mean, look, look what happened yesterday. Um, you know, Juan Soto uh, of the Nationals, the star, you know, young star left fielder, uh, had, a, had a positive test, right? Right. And they still, and they still played the game. So, um, you know, I think that so long as you don't have, like, 12 players, you know, getting positive tests at once, I think they'll keep playing if it's one or two. I would, I would worry more about professional football just because by the nature of the sport, um, if there's a virus floating around with the offensive lineman, it sure is pretty easy to get it on the defensive lineman, you know? So uh, to me, the, the, the question mark is whether you'll be able to play uh, football after after a game or two, so how many players will come down with COVID? Yeah, I mean, it would be it would be so difficult to start off a season and then have to stop it or have some teams, you know, strike out or whatever. Speaking of which, Joe, how long does it take for a league to get back up and running after a lost season? I mean, remember 94, 95 with baseball? Right. Well, you know, they're all trying to cobble together just something. I mean, the, N- the NBA was 
was out from March, and they're going to start up July 31. Hockey is pretty much the same thing. Major League Soccer has just started up. Baseball is starting up. But they're only going to have a 60-game season. And they're all just um, uh, improvising. you know. So baseball is going to have a bigger playoffs to get more teams in the playoffs. They're all just trying to figure it out. I mean, basketball is going to have pretty much 10 regular season games, and then they're going to go straight to the playoffs. In a way, these are seasons that should have asterisks because, you know, whatever numbers or figures, they're not truly representative of what a season uh, is. And um, I think the real question to me is, how are the fans going to react? Are they going to tune in? Are they going to tune out? Are they going to cut the cord? We don't know. We just don't know. So, Joe, let's go back to college football because, again, you're in Florida, SEC territory. I mean, that is as big as pro football is in you know a lot of the country. If you go to some of these southern and mid-midwestern parts of the country, college football is just huge. And I'm thinking about the Big Ten, the SEC. Uh, the Big Ten's talking about playing just conference games. Is there a are you looking for one of these big power conferences to kind of just say, listen, guys, it's not going to, it's not going to work. We've already had the Ivy league and some other division one, double a conferences. Put right. back, but are you expecting a big power five conference to kind of be the yes, first? I am. And it'll be the big 10, the big 10. They got a new commissioner. He doesn't want to um, screw up. And he's already said, even in the press release where they said they were going to go only conference games. He basically said, you know, if we play, you know, so he's already hedging. I mean, I think it'll be the Big Ten. It's certainly not going to be the SEC. <laughs> they'll be the last. They'll be the last ones. I mean, in Alabama, uh, you know, Alabama football is religion. Yep. You want to follow Paul because that was a little bit double dutch to me. No, I was just you know, and how about some of these? You know, we're starting to see some of that. You know, I'm looking at golf. They were one of the ones that first came back, and the ratings are good, and it seems to be working for golf. Is that something that you think can continue? Yes, golf and tennis are the two sports that that you can play and socially distance, right? Uh, and, and if you watch the golf the golf tournaments, I mean they're you know they're they're keeping their I mean they always did, but they're keeping their distance from each other except for their caddies. And there's no there are no there are no people there, there are no fans there, and it's purely a television event. And it, it really it's working just fine. And I, I think you'll find that tennis will will sort of be the same way. I'd be surprised if they have to cancel the U.S. Open um, uh, because, again, you know, the, the players are on on other side uh, of the net, and as long as they don't, you know, handshake or hug or whatever, yep. they, they should be fine. It's, it's, the, it's the contact sports where you have a problem. And it's all about the NFL. Let's talk about, you know, the elephant in the room. Are you expecting Roger Goodell to just kind of play it by ear, or is he going to try to take a bold statement, we're going or we're not going? No, he's got. They have to play it by ear. They really don't have any choice. They desperately want to play, but you know the networks. I mean, I mean, it's hard to overstate how important uh, professional football is uh, to the television networks. Honestly, it's it's the only thing that's keeping cord cutting from from being even more widespread than it already is. And so there's enormous pressure to play these games. Um, but, you know, they're all a little nervous because they don't want to wake up tomorrow and say, oh, 20 New York Jets have, are COVID positive. You know, right. yeah. one, one or two, they'll, they'll, they'll blow through it. But 20, no, they won't. So basically, they've got their fingers crossed. 
Yeah, it's interesting. We have to see how this is all going to come to a head really over the next several weeks for a lot of these big, big yeah. leagues. Uh, I'm thinking college football, pro football, and lots of other things. Joe Nacera, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Thanks so much for joining us on the phone from South Florida. Uh, we will pay attention to this because, as Joe was just mentioning, it's uh, it's big businesses to the schools uh, for the college level and on the pros, uh, but it's also big, big business for the broadcast and cable networks that really rely upon sports programming and the advertising it brings in. So this market has a lot of investment managers and investors scratching their heads. Let's examine some of the reasons behind the rise and rise and rise of equities with Stephen Dover now, head of equities at Franklin Templeton. $228 billion in equities under management, nearly $600 billion in total assets under management. Stephen, welcome. How much does it concern you that 21% of the market cap of the S&P 500 is basically five companies these days? Well, the concentration in those companies is absolutely amazing, and they account for about 30% of the total um, return on the market. In fact, it's interesting. If you were to take uh, those companies out uh, and compare the return on the U.S. market to the overseas market, you'd find out that they're about the same, uh, which, which means the difference between the U.S. markets and overseas markets is all about those five companies. So um, the spread of uh, the, and the concentration in the market is the greatest that it's been uh, since, uh, well, since roughly 1999. Um, and um, so, yes, there's a concern about that concentration in the market. How about speaking of concerns, and there's plenty to go through, um, uh, Stephen, how about China here? It seems like just in the past couple of days, the tensions have ratcheted up even one more notch. How much of that is a concern for you guys? I know you guys are global investors at Franklin Templeton. How do you think about that? Yeah, thank you. I've been a long-term uh, China watcher. I've uh, been to China uh, many, many times since so way back in 1982. So uh, I kind of look at it from a, from a local perspective and also just to let you know, we also manage money locally for uh, Chinese investors. I think that um, clearly the West is very concerned about China. Uh, there's much less trust about China. And if you're to look at the headlines, perhaps you would avoid um, investing in China. I would note, and this is particularly, I think, important because I talked to a lot of uh, foreign investors, that the issues between China and excuse me, between the United States and China, is not just this administration. A new administration would also, it's a bipartisan issue. Um, in fact, it's a Western issue, including Europe. All that said, China A-share market is up uh, over 35% since March, is one of the best performing markets. China has cut, it, cut its trade dependence nearly in half over the last three, three uh, or four years. And China is moving from a trade-dependent economy to a consumer a dependent economy. So while I have concerns, I think investors should continue uh, to look at China as an investment opportunity. There's especially a lot of good technology opportunities in China. That said, I think one of the biggest changes we're going to see in the United States is a change in the supply chain and a movement back uh, from some of these emerging markets to the U.S. What that will do is change our economy. Uh, we're very dependent on consumer spending. It's about 70% of our economy. And we may be spending a lot more on capital spending uh, as we change that supply chain. That'll be positive for the U.S., particularly uh, the Midwest and the central part of America. So won't that then change the outlook for investing in China, Stephen? If some of this escalates and there isn't, 
you know, a rollback of some of the tension. Why would it be so safe to invest in China for U.S. investors? Well, I think U.S. investors um, have to look at China uh, very carefully. I think it's definitely a place where you have to look at uh, corporate governance because the government of China has a lot of influence on all the companies. I think we're probably likely to live in a world, especially on the technology side, where there's two different systems. There's the Western slash American system and the Chinese system, which will primarily dominate within the emerging markets. Um, But China is going to continue to grow, although not at the speed that it was growing uh, before. It's going to be a higher quality growth. And I think that there are still um, a lot of companies in, in China and in the emerging markets that will continue to have opportunity, particularly relative to the U.S. companies, which, as I mentioned before, I think are probably a bit ahead of themselves. So, Stephen, I just want to get your thoughts here because the uh, on the fiscal stimulus that's being currently debated in Congress, um, how important is it that we get something done like now, like the next, you know, before the recess? I mean, how do you, are you guys at Franklin Templeton thinking about the need for fiscal stimulus to keep this economy uh, going at, at, at the current rate at least? I think that the market expects that the stimulus will be passed in some way. If it's not passed, I think the market will, will be disappointed. Um, we're in a very interesting time. It's likely that the trials of some of the vaccines uh, will come out in September or October. Uh, nobody knows uh, because the only way to know whether the vaccines are going to work is to do the trials. But if, if, if in the likelihood that those trials are positive, I think the market would absolutely boom because there's so much stimulus. Uh, but that's not likely. It's more likely that there be small steps and, and more uh, therapeutic. So we have this great uncertainty. And at the same time, we have this massive stimulus. So if, for whatever reason, uh, the virus takes a downward downward mode. Because we have so much stimulus, the market is likely to, to be uh, uh, undervalued and and likely to, to boom. On the other hand, as you mentioned, if we don't have the stimulus and we have this this wave of the virus continuing, yep. then I think the market will struggle. So um, the short answer to your question is yes, the stimulus from the government is important, but we might find out in a, in a couple of months that yep. it's overstimulus. Right, because potentially. All right, we'll see. We'll find out certainly in the next week or so. Hopefully, Stephen Dover, head of equities for Franklin Templeton, joining us on the phone from San Mateo, California, giving us his thoughts about the market. China, very interesting. Um, Obviously, trade tensions and tensions across the board between the U.S. and China are rising. It doesn't seem to be abating any time soon. We'll have to see how the market discounts that. This is Bloomberg. Some headlines crossing the Bloomberg terminal here. Apparently, uh, Mr. Fauci was speaking uh, to the Washington Post. He says the U.S. shutdown was about 50 percent in reality, whereas the Europe was about 90 percent. And he's also saying uh, that some southern states need to step back on reopening. So some cautious commentary there. We'll see kind of how those states react going forward. One of the industries that's really, really been impacted is the entertainment industry. It's all but shut down in production. 
movie theaters have been closed. Uh, it's just been extraordinary here. People are staying home. They're streaming uh, movies, and even some studios are bypassing the release of uh, movies into studios, going directly into streaming services. So really, the entertainment industry has been extraordinarily disrupted uh, by this coronavirus, and we're very fortunate to have someone who can really shed some color on this for us. Jane Rosenthal, co-founder, chief executive officer, and executive chair of the Tribeca Film Festival joins us. Jane, thanks so much for joining us here. Let's just start with the production here. It's all but shut down of movies and TVs globally, hasn't it? It has. Um, you know, we're always about uh, safety first. So even in normal times when you're on a film set, you always want to ensure that your your actors, your crew are safe and it's no different in these times, uh, although it is uh, incredibly uh, uh, sad, uh, the complete economic destruction it has done uh, for so many people in our industry. Well, the Tribeca Film Festival, one of the world's greatest film festivals, founded back in 2002, so this year would have been and is the 18th year, and you didn't let coronavirus stop you. You found some very interesting ways of getting around showing movies, for example. Tell us what you did in order to be able to show movies to people. Well, at our core, we aim to bring people together through the arts and to send a signal of unity and resiliency, especially during these challenging times. Tribeca was started right after uh, 9-11 to bring people back together. One of the things we did at the time was we did these drive-ins, which were actually sit-ins on the West Side Highway because you couldn't get enough people downtown. We didn't have large enough venues at the time. Now we came up with the idea of doing drive-ins nationally so people could be in their cars, they could be socially distanced with families that they have been quarantined with, and watch a movie. Um, There's nothing like the magic of the movie-going experiences, and drive-ins have certainly been a part of uh, our our movie-going history. Jane, what do you think the this lock-in, this COVID-induced lock-in is going to do to consumer behavior as it relates to that movie-going experience. Attendance in the U.S. for theatrical has been, you know, flattish over the last decade or so. Um, And now theaters have been shut for, uh, we're not sure how long they're going to be shut, but certainly for several months here. Do you think that's going to impact consumer behavior as it relates to going to movies? Uh, Consumer behavior has been impacted about going to the movies Uh, for several years now. Moviegoers have more choices, the audience have more choices than ever before. Do you want to stay home and watch it on your computer? Do you want to watch it on a small screen? Do you want to play a game? Where do you want to, you know, how do you want to do something? So you've had those choices. I think that as just as human beings, we want to gather. We want to be together. We want to laugh together. We want to listen to music together. So that will come back. There's no question it will come back when we finally have the rigorous science and people know that they're safe and they can, um, and we can be together. There is nothing like being in a movie theater and laughing or being at a great concert and singing together, Mm. or for that matter, you know, at uh, a sporting event and cheering your favorite team. 
So that's well, going, that will come back. We just have to, you know, wait for, you know, the proper science, the vaccine, the right protocols. And one of the things you're working on, in fact, is to bring Walmart on board so you can have 160 Walmart locations act as drive-ins, which would really open up this kind of thing to a lot more people. But Jane, talk to us about this year's festival. I've noticed, you know, a lot of free content online and you were no different. You had a whole week of a free We Are One global film festival where people could access on YouTube all of the movies for free. It was actually 10 days worth uh, before you got to the the drive-in portion of the festival, which lasts for another few days. Next year, you'll have all these people that now know about the Tribeca Film Festival, but will you have depleted your resources or will you be able to continue to, to raise money to bring Tribeca to maybe an even larger audience after this? I hope so. Um, you know, certainly we'll uh, we'll announce our dates. Uh, all you know, when you look at whether it has been the Academy Awards, all the various festivals, the dates have been uh, all dates have been pushed around, and how much is actually going to be done in person versus virtual. You look at what uh, they're doing at the Toronto Film Festival. So, um, again, it's going to be until we know we can all gather and be safe, it's going to be be challenging. Uh, Plus, what new movies are in the pipeline that we'll be able to we'll be able to show uh in terms of tribeca we're excited about uh, it will be our 20th anniversary um uh next uh, next year and we're excited about new ways that we can do things uh outdoors uh not just drive-ins we've got some other things up our up our sleeves and uh you know, I feel at this time, as 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 sad and as uh, difficult and the psychic impact it's had on all of us, I feel that it's also becoming some of the most. You'll have the most creative time uh, from artists coming up uh, because we've been forced to to think differently, and it's a time that will of great innovation and great change. Um, you know, it's uh, it's also the most difficult and extraordinary time yes. uh, in our lifetime. But it, uh, Exactly. Well, Jane, for those who have cars or who want to rent a car for the evening, there is still time to go and see some of the wonderful f- movies that you're putting on, some old movies, some new movies, and uh, check those out on the website, TribecaFilm.com. Our thanks so much to Jane Rosenthal, co-founder and CEO of the Tribeca Film Festival, on the go since 2002, and of course dealing with the coronavirus in the year 2020. Not an easy one, but they're keeping it going as so many arts and culture organizations are doing Paul it's really phenomenal to see all of the emails come in and you know offering free content and hopefully it will it will pay off hopefully people who use the free content will come back next time it's paid content and pay for it yeah exactly and the arts have really been disrupted here but uh, hopefully most of them can hang on Well, tensions between the U.S. and China continue to escalate. Earlier this week, of course, the U.S. uh, closed a Chinese consulate in Houston, Texas. China retaliated uh, just yesterday by closing a U.S. embassy in a city, uh, Chengdu, uh, so in retaliation for that. So the question is, where do we go from here? What's causing this rising tensions? And again, where do we go from here? Andy Brown, editorial director for Bloomberg New Economy, joins us on the phone. Andy, I... 
Give us some color here. Since what is really driving these rising tensions between the U.S. and China? It seems like they've really ratcheted up just in the last couple of years and certainly the last several months. Yeah, look, I, I, think, I think there are a couple of things going on here. I mean, first of all, and most basically, this is Trump and his White House lashing out at China um, because it's a vote winner. Beating up on China is perceived as being the, 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 the easiest path toward re-election at a time when it's become increasingly apparent that, uh, um, you know, uh, Trump is, is, is heading towards defeat. So that's the first thing. The, se- the second thing is it's a distraction from uh, the pandemic. And, and again, you know, it's uh, Trump uh, himself has now acknowledged that this fight against COVID-19 is going really badly um, and could cost him votes. It could even cost him the election. So that's the second thing. Then more broadly, I think what this is demonstrating is that China policy in the White House has now been captured by Mike Pompeo um, and a very small group of anti-China hawks. And they're pretty much convinced that the U.S. and Chinese economic and political systems are incompatible. Um, One free, democratic, capitalist, the other closed, repressive, increasingly state-led, and that a showdown is on the way. And it's better to have this showdown earlier than later um, before China builds up its capabilities even further. Um, and then the timetable for this, of course, is this sense that, you know, if they're, uh, if, they're, if they're out in November, they better get on with this pretty quickly. And I think all of this um, is combining to create what, what really is now looking like a, a deep crisis, um, a, a real rift, a historic rift in U.S.-China relations. So what's the strategy here, Andy? A tit-for-tat closing of embassies and consulates until there are none left? Yeah, so Houston is closed. Um, um, Chengdu is closing. Uh, this is the latest in a, um, in a series of tit-for-tat escalations. You'll remember, of course, that it began with journalists. Um, then we had tit-for-tat expulsions of academics, of scientists, um, floating the whole series of trial balloons. There was this um, idea to ban all members of the Chinese Communist Party uh, from from entering the United States, there was even talk, which was which was shot down, of trying to destabilize the Hong Kong dollar pegged to the U.S. dollar as punishment for the national security law that Beijing imposed on Hong Kong. So it's 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 the latest in a series of of, of escalations. Andy, give us a sense, to the best of your ability, of what you think China would like to see. I'm I'm sure China doesn't view this process as a positive for them, I, but I, I'm just not sure kind of what their strategy may be here. Do they want to interact with the U.S.? Do they want to engage with the U.S.? Um, what do you think their feeling is? Well, sure. I mean, they, they certainly don't want to see the relationship falling apart. They need U.S. investment. They need U.S. technology. They need U.S. markets. Um, and, uh, you know, on the contrary, though, uh, you know, what's the, the, the impact, actually, um, of all of this anti-Chinese uh, um, hysteria now coming out of the White House uh, is that it's actually reinforcing the power and the prestige of the Chinese leadership. 
even those people in in China who you know like uh, the United States, who know America, who've studied here, um, you know these people who um, have gone back to China and are struggling to put in place against a lot of opposition. Um, you know, something that looks like a, a rules-based system uh, for China. Even these people are now rallying around the flag. Um, they're now supporting the Chinese, uh, the Chinese leadership. That said, how much does China need the United States? How far can China take this before it has to take a step back? Well, it's a good question. I mean, does China need the U.S.? Um, you know, more than the U.S. needs China. China is moving now uh, towards um, the, 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 the catchphrase now is self-reliance. So on technology, on industry, Xi Jinping's China is moving towards, um, you know, uh, aut- uh, autarky uh, on the economy and technology. Um, the United States, on the other hand, uh, certainly U.S. companies desperately need um, the Chinese market. Uh, in many markets, uh, China is the biggest. I Andy, mean, if GM didn't have China, you know, it'd be out of business right now. I'm just going to jump in because we are getting a headline on this very subject right now. The Chinese researcher at the San Francisco consulate that the U.S. had accused of, well, maybe doing illicit things, is now in custody. The U.S is speaking to reporters on the China consulate closing and apparently that person who is taking refuge at the consulate in San Francisco of China is now in custody. So a developing story. Andy, the perfect time to have you on. Thank you. That is Andy Brown of the New Economy Forum at Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.